Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Everybody, this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another episode of a little true crime. We usually try to, you know, facilitate some conversation around healthcare and nursing. We like to slip that in there and use these stories to kind of facilitate that conversation. I'm not sure this week's bad nurse segment is going to stir up a lot of healthcare talk. It's a little out there, just it's, it's kind of crazy, but it is certainly an interesting one for sure. But before we get into that, I want to welcome my guest host for this week. You all are probably familiar with her podcast and her company, The Fresh RN. Her name is Katie Kleber, and she's here with us today to talk a little true crime. And then we're going to learn all about Katie and why I think she's a perfect fit for the Good Nurse segment of our show. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Well, thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat. Yeah, I'm excited too. I've been a kind of a, a fan of yours for several years now. You've been doing this a long time. It's been, yeah, this was my official 10-year anniversary this year of uh, blogging and all that. Yeah, you were blogging and podcasting before podcasting was cool. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think the podcast released originally in January of 2017. The mm-hmm. blog, I started it in, ooh, that would have been... 2013. Yeah, like May-ish of 2013. Yeah. So it's been a little while. Oh, yeah. I think podcasting really kind of took off in the when uh, the pandemic kind of hit and everything mm-hmm. was shut down. So suddenly everybody wanted to do a podcast. So yes, yeah, it, it is. Yeah, that's a ton. Of, as you know, it's yeah. a ton of work. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people figured that out. And a lot of those podcasts are sort of faded. They sort of pod faded. And they're, you know, pod there's faded. like, that's a good if, yeah, there's a few episodes out there. And then yeah, it's work. It is a lot of work, but I, I love doing it. So I will continue, continue the work. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. Are you looking to take your career to the next level? Consider enrolling in the Doctor of Nursing Practice Program at UC Irvine. The program offers a post-master's track for MSN-prepared nurses and a family nurse practitioner track for those with at least a BSN. Their program, of course, is fully accredited, and their graduates are highly sought after by healthcare organizations across the country. If you're ready to take the next step in your nursing career, I encourage you to explore UCI Irvine's DNP program today. Visit nursing.uci.edu to learn more, and of course, we'll put a link on our website and you can access it at goodnursebadnurse.com. So I guess we can get started with this story. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) It never, never ceases to amaze me the things, the situations people can get themselves into, especially highly educated people. Man, sometimes highly educated people can do some of the dumbest things on just completely unimaginable. So this is the story of Ira Bernstein. He is a New York podiatrist. To an outsider, it seemed like he had perfect life. And this man, if I had a dollar for every time I've said I started out a podcast, (laughs) because everything always seems like it's just all perfect and idyllic uh, from the outside. And it's not always like that, right? When you pull the curtain back. So he met his wife, Susan, at a party during their college days at the University of Pennsylvania. They married in the mid-1990s. Together, they had three children. And while Susan pursued her higher level of degrees in education, 
He went to medical school and Susan was supportive of him throughout his endeavors. Those are tough years, Katie. I I know you've probably dealt with lots of doctors as I have. Yeah, I can't fathom like that long, that long journey and like having Mm -hmm. a spouse like support you through that. Like that's like so much sacrifice, like 80 hour work weeks. When you're a resident, you're making a little bit of money, but not much, you know, and and an immense um, like mental and emotional load. So it's like to support someone through that journey is a, is Mm -hmm. a big sacrifice. I think now granted, I don't know what her professional journey was and what if they were both, you know, going to (laughs) like, demanding programs at the same time. I'm not sure. But still, like, that's a lot. That's a lot to support a spouse through. No doubt. And I've talked about that a lot on this podcast about how we really need to be respecting our physicians and appreciating them for the sacrifice that they make. And so many times, I think, we as as nurses, as, as colleagues, and even as patients can Really, we've some people have kind of lost that respect for physicians and the sacrifice that they've made. And let me just tell you, I've worked alongside residents that I worked at a teaching hospital, so worked right alongside residents that I, I would see them kind of grow up from a first year resident, you know, and they're just out of medical school, they're scared to death, they're just like, I don't know anything, this is my first day, uh, you know, that's how they'll approach you, you know, they're like, I'm just letting you know right now, I'm horrified, and then, you know. You're just like, oh, no, it's cool. It's fine. You know, this looks good. You know, it's just you're kind of helping each other out. And then by the fourth year, they are literally running the show and just bringing other, you know, residents up underneath them. So it's a beautiful thing. And I've seen them there like early in the morning. And then late at night, and I'm just like, why are you, why are you here? Because you were here last night. How did, did you sleep? Or, yeah, so. Oh, yeah, they have ridiculous work schedules. And then you think about, too, like, one thing as a nurse, you're you're doing, you know, your thing. But physicians also have that responsibility. Like, the order is put under their name. Like, yep. you know, and I know the pushback is they make more money. You know, yes, they do make more money, but they carry significantly more, like, liability, responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, every mistakes and issues all come back to them. And it's one of those things like I never decided I never wanted to become a nurse practitioner because I didn't want that level. Yeah, of that responsibility resp- prescribing goodness, medications. Yeah. And I mean, it's definitely like, I think there is you're right. I think that we've lost a little bit of that, like kind of like respect, I think for people who have not only chosen to go on the journey of becoming a physician, but like who were qualified to do so. Like yeah. only so many people get into medical school school. And I know, yes, there are some idiots that become doctors or people oh, just who like don't, every, yeah, like every pro- profession. But it, I mean, it is challenging to get into a medical school, get matched for a residency program, successfully mm-hmm. complete a residency program, successfully complete a fellowship. Like these are really big professional journey or like milestones that people have mm-hmm. to meet to just even be in that position to be the yeah. scared resident in front of you who doesn't know yeah. anything. And like, I remember a resident telling me like his first day of residency, he was in NICU with little babies. Aww. And all these nurses are saying, what order, give me this order, tell me to do this, do this. And what do you want to do? And he's like, I've never worked with babies before. And I'm mm. putting in orders under my own name. And I don't know what I'm doing. And just like the amount of stress and pressure. I mean, Absolutely. there's a reason that there's such a high suicide rate for Oh, physicians. isn't that true? Yes. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's scary as well. And when people are, you know, thinking about how much money doctors make, for one thing, the hospitalists and, and internal medicine doctors, they don't make as much money as you might think they do. Yeah, and they, they, they definitely make a decent salary for sure. But they also ha- do have they most of them do carry probably really expensive liability insurance. And a lot of them are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from student loans, let me just tell you, because mm-hmm. they can't afford to work another job while they're mm-hmm. in medical school. So they rack up hundreds, like I'm talking four or $500,000 yes. of student loans. So just it's keep pretty- that in mind. And and then you think too, there's also that social component of like, okay, now you're a doctor. You know, you should have this, you can get approved for different loans and things because oh you're gosh, a physician. Yes. And yes. so there's this like lifestyle creep of, mm-hmm. okay, maybe now I'm making 250K. I've got these massive loan payments that are probably larger than my mortgage. Like these massive loan payments, this social expectation and the kind of keeping up with the Joneses thing. And as we'll get into this story of his Mm. financial, you know, you wonder like you you get a little taste of how, oh, I've worked so hard and put myself through so much. 
oh, I want to have the nicer things. And it's unfortunately, that's typically not how wealth gets like sustainable wealth gets built. And I think that it's interesting. You can have nurses who work good hours, are good with their time, money management and Mm -hmm. debt management, who can have actually more time and financial freedom than a physician. Right. Like if you, even if you earn a lot, if you spend a ton and then you have your debt and you're working 80 hours a week, like that can be worse than someone who's making less but has more time freedom and doesn't have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. So it's like the answer isn't always more money, people. Yeah. It's not. So it's true. more about the management of it and then how the rest of your life, you're, how happy you are with the rest of your life too. Because it's life is more than that profession, you know. So true. So true. So Ira did open a series of foot surgery centers. So I mean, open opening multiple centers, the business I'm sure was doing great. It was thriving, Uh, afforded the family a lavish lifestyle. They lived in a 13,000 square foot home. 13,000 square feet. I don't even comprehend. And he had had, what, three kids? I can't, like, that 13,000 square feet, like, (laughs) And not only I read that not only was he he had all these clinics, he was also the official physician for podiatrist, not official, but like the unofficial phys- podiatrist for the police department that arrested him. <laughs> oh, that's that stinks. Oh man. Well, let me just tell you, I work now as, in a position where I am trying to find physicians for people who need specialists and podiatrists, especially podi- uh, ortho- orthopedic podiatrists who do mm-hmm. surgery on feet. They're not easy to find. They are few and far between. And a lot of specialties are getting like this. We are losing our specialty physicians, especially if you go out west to New Mexico, to Arizona, to some of these areas where you get into kind of the more rural areas. They can some those people can sometimes have to go three like three, four hundred miles to get to a hospital that has a specialist that does whatever service that they're needing. So I can totally appreciate this. He he had a series of foot surgery centers. I think that's awesome. But I mean, how come 13,000 square foot? Oh, man, that's a lot. So yeah. he had a swimming pool, a pool house, a tennis court, a nearby lake. Um, but as we know, and as you said earlier, money definitely doesn't purchase happiness. And over time, their marriage began to deteriorate. So he accused Susan of living beyond their means and racking up expensive debts and credit card bills to satisfy her luxurious lifestyle. He claimed he was working tirelessly while Susan, who is now a stay-at-home mom and has a live-in nanny, is easily and and routinely charging $40,000 a month on credit cards, according to him. That's more than most people make in a year. Yeah. That's if you look up the average, uh, I think, you know, the median income in the United States, it's not that much more, you know, than that. So mm, a month. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rift between the couple only increased when Ira became romantically involved with a former patient of his. Kelly Gribuluk was 35. She was a former mortician and an aspiring model. She was recently divorced, but didn't seem to think twice about diving into a romance with the podiatrist. She fell for him pretty hard, and he wanted to keep his mistress close and hired her to work in his one of his offices. So he even let her take his Maserati on joy rides throughout town. Maserati, man. Those doctors in their uh, fancy, fancy cars. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So while Kelly was considered to be a model citizen, uh, I feel like that's kind of a pun, and I didn't even mean to. <laughs> I... Oh, that's funny. That is funny. I also, I did read that Kelly had three kids herself, and she did not have custody of them. Mm. Mm. They went through a bitter divorce. And I tried to find information about it, but the, because this happened in 2017, and some, like, some of the links were no longer live. But she had three kids and only had, like, short visitation rights with them after a very bitter divorce situation. So I don't know. That was all the details I could find out about that. But that's interesting because usually moms don't. Moms usually get custody. So I thought that was interesting about Miss Kelly. <laughs> yeah. And there's some there's some interesting history with her too. So even though she's 
kind of known to her peers and, and neighbors and people around town as being sort of a model citizen. Her name was known to the, to the police from where she had a fatal drunk driving accident she had previously been involved in. She struck a pedestrian. Interesting. She, yeah. She this wasn't charged with a crime, though. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how this happens, but she is drunk driving, and they know this, or else it wouldn't have been out here. It, it, the, all of the information that we give on these podcasts are from articles that are free to the public. It's information that's out there. And so the fact that it's known that she was drunk while driving this car, and she struck a pedestrian, which caused a death, but she wasn't charged with a crime. I don't understand that. They ruled in an accident. You know, the only thing that I could think of would be while she was intoxicated, maybe they couldn't prove there was, you know, wasn't enough evidence or something to like conclusively say. So they didn't file charges. It mm. could, and it could, you know, it depends on who the DA was at the time and everything. And who are, you know, some people just have really good attorneys that can, they can find the loopholes. They can, you know, whatever they need to do, work their backroom deals, I guess. So despite their crumbling marriage, Susan was less than thrilled when she found out that her husband's infidelity, you know, about her husband's infidelity with a younger woman. She accused him of running off to the Bahamas on a romantic rendezvous with his new girlfriend, but he vehemently denied this. He tried to persuade Susan with some like flimsy story that he was in Florida with his mother. But Susan, of course, is not convinced that she went ahead and filed for divorce. So the divorce fell through because the couple decided to stay in an open relationship for convenience and probably a little money issues as well. And Ira reportedly didn't want to have to divide his wealth with his wife. So he felt because he felt it was unfair. I've, man, I've done so many of these stories where people who have, and it's almost always I'd say it's no, probably every time. I honestly can't remember a time when it wasn't this way that it's always men who have accumulated a lot of wealth because of their hard work. I mean, really, they worked really hard and accumulated a lot of wealth. And then their marriage kind of sours and they have to separate and they just are so bitter. They cannot fathom splitting half of their wealth that they've, quote, worked so hard for. And they, for some reason, cannot see the sacrifice that their spouse made all those years by not pursuing their dreams, their, you know, their career, building their career to where they would be able, you know, to move up the ladder and make more money and be successful. And who knows what that person would have, would have become. That's why it's fair, but he could not see it. And he felt like it was unfair. So three months later, Susan filed another legal document. This time it was a restraining order. She told police that Ira was physically and verbally abusive to both her and the children. So again, the couple tried to reconcile their marriage, but the marriage seemed beyond repair. Ira once more turned to his mistress, Kelly. So this is a back and forth, pretty, you know, tale as old as time. It, the back and forth trying to, okay, let's try to get back together. I feel like people, you know, you get this huge skillet of scrambled eggs and you just can't separate it back out. So then you just keep trying to make it work. And I, there's also probably feelings there from when you're first married and you loved each other. So that's probably, I would say, what plays into this back and forth kind of like, okay, let's try to work on it. And then you're like, oh, no, I, I forgot. No, I don't like you. <laughs> and then you're just I did I did read some interesting things about her or just like the marriage and how – so, you know, he has a podiatry clinic. But like, you know, you make good money from that. But you don't make like Maserati, like $40,000 monthly expenses kind of thing. And so obviously he's doing some stuff he shouldn't be doing. With his medical license. Oh. And like insurance fraud stuff. Oh, gosh. Like overcharging for, or like, you know, claiming people are need certain things when they don't and getting insurance reimbursement. And from what I could tell, his wife knew about all that stuff mm. and threatened to expose him to the police. Uh, of And there's like an audio recording of her saying, like, you're going to be in jail. Um, I'm going to tell everybody everything. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, because he was getting I, – I also read – like so all this went down in 2017. In 2014, he had multiple lawsuits against him for fraudulent stuff, totaling like $2 million. 
And then there was some more lawsuits and I tried to find them, but I couldn't. He had mul- the, the article that talked about this. He had those two major lawsuits before any of this happened and then multiple other ones against him. So it was like, this dude was into some illegal stuff like with insurance and, you know, payment and things. And it was clear his wife was aware of that. And it's like, I wonder, did y'all both acclimate to this fancy, fancy lifestyle? It's very hard to like come back out of that after you've bought all these things that make your lifestyle so expensive, like Maserati payments and payments on a 13,000 square foot house. I don't even know what the house would, I don't even know where they lived, but like how much that would cost. Like, the, it sounds like they both had some needs of ill repute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've done several stories on this podcast before about doctors and nurse practitioners who have gotten themselves into some serious hot water because mm-hmm. of Medicare, Medicaid fraud. You do not want the federal government after you, trust me. And I, oh, I, yeah. And in, I mean, there's the, the internet is full of them, of healthcare professionals doing this, whether it's doctors, nurse practitioners, dentists, physical therapists, like people who own companies and have to bill insurance companies, Medicare, Medicaid, can get themselves into so much trouble. So I, I always like to use this opportunity to just remind people it how important it is to have really, really good staff for one thing. Sometimes there's some question as to whether or not the person who owned the clinic even knew that it was going right. on because the nurse, you know, like the office manager, whoever's running the finances. So, and of course, they're going to point fingers <laughs> at each other. But you, number one, if you own a clinic, you better know who's, you better have your fingers on it and know exactly what is going on what's being billed and make sure it's being done correctly and be sure you can trust the person who's handling things for you. And number two, don't ever think, oh, if I bill this, you know, twice as much, or what if I said, you start thinking that way, thinking you're somehow outsmarting the government, the federal government. No, they're looking for you. They are Mm -hmm. literally they have algorithms, computer programs with algorithm, algorithms that look for this stuff. They can, they comb through records and they, they start seeing patterns and then bam, you are flagged and you're on a list and they'll come after you. So just you're, you're warned, you've been warned if you listen to this podcast and you yeah. do now or will ever own a clinic and you have to deal with insurance companies. I would not oh, want yeah. to. It's, 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 I don't think people realize how like there's so much honesty that is involved in it because it's like you are the healthcare professional and it's whatever you think needs to happen based on your judgment. And if you're the doctor and the owner of like he probably was, it's like, oh, it's completely my judgment. I could say this person needs X, Y, and Z. And I'll document that they need this so that they reimburse that. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not actually what they need. And maybe the patient is only minorly ha- harmed in a minor way, or maybe, maybe more so, you know, but like saying someone needs something that they don't need, maybe they're getting a surgery or they're getting certain things yeah, based on your professional opinion. And then mm-hmm. you can bill insurance for a ton of, you know, a m- bunch of money. And then, you know, it covers your overhead. It's just, it can get really dicey. And you, you know, this is stuff you can't just, you can go to prison for not just yeah. get fines. Like this oh, yeah. can be a huge deal. So it's just, it's sad to see because it ultimately there's multiple victims of that kind of fraud is the, obviously if there's a patient who, you know, got an unnecessary procedure or unnecessary testing and just like an unnecessary care plan. Right. But then you also think of like the people who are paying into like, I think that the, what was it? United Healthcare was the people who were investigating him. Now, granted, I'm not a fan of insurance companies, but if you've got all these people doing fraud, um, that's going to increase your premiums, right? <laughs> like, cause, sure. cause all these things are being billed and everything that are not actually real. Now there, that's a big messy thing of insurance, but that, that kind of adds to it. And I think that's something like, you know, it's not a victimless crime there. No, by any absolutely means. not. It's definitely not. And uh, I've done some stories uh, involving Medicare, Medicaid fraud, where people have done longer 
prison sentences than people who've literally committed murder. Uh, I mean, it, it, it will shock you sometimes. We're just like, how did this person only get like five years and there was a literal death involved? Mm-hmm. And it was and there was intentional, but you know, they have plea deal plea deals and all sorts of things that kind of go into those decisions. But still, it can be kind of like, how does this happen? But it does. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking like decades in prison for for what, you know? Yeah. Not worth yeah, it, man. in Y'all, my opinion. When you, when you get your professional license, man, you're held to a higher standard, that's for sure. You sure are. Absolutely. So things at home, they're just really heating up. Ira became distressed. Kelly, his girlfriend, would later remark about the stress from the failing marriage and that it was depriving him of sleep and causing him to experience panic attacks. Kelly reported wanting to make Ira happy, and together they devised a plan to make their dreams a reality. They just had to overcome the hurdle of Ira's unhappiness, which was his wife, Susan. So with dreams of a wealthy future, with her lover Ira in mind, Kelly partook in a favorite pastime, shopping. Only Kelly wasn't shopping for luxury items like clothing, jewelry, or purses. Kelly was shopping for murder. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. For murder. <laughs> I feel like we need like that like cheesy kind of like yes. old time radio. You know what I'm talking about? Like the yes, old I radio do. shows. Or, oh my or gosh. some classic Law and Order. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, absolutely. We definitely need it. <laughs> we all know that when we're taking any medication or supplement, dosage matters. And it's important to take enough to get the desired result. For example, only taking a 10 milligram Tylenol might not help with your headache. Well, the same is true for CBD. If you try a low-dose CBD product, you may not feel anything. But it's not the CBD's fault. The dosage is the problem. This is why CBD Stat only makes high-dose CBD products that actually work. And now, their products are getting even stronger. CBD Stat is happy to announce that they're launching a new extra-strength version of its highly popular topical products that have 7,500 milligrams of CBD. This new strength will by far maintain CBD Stat's status as the most powerful CBD product line on the market. More CBD means it's more effective in helping everyone tackle daily aches and pains. CBD Stat sent me a box of these new products, and I already knew it was going to work because I've been using it for my neck pain and foot pain, but I can definitely tell the difference in this new strength, and I'm really excited to get to tell you guys about it. And on top of these new higher strength products, they're also dropping prices across the board on all their products to make CBD Stat not only the most effective on the market, but also the most affordable. And don't forget, all you healthcare workers out there get a special additional discount to help keep you strong. Just head to cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare and find your new secret weapon. That's cbdstat.care forward slash healthcare. So Kelly attempted to source a hitman, but her first three, three, <laughs> three. <laughs> I mean, really, this story, it gets better. You guys are not even going to believe it. Like you, when that just rolls off the tongue, you're just like, Wait, hold on. Er, we're back. Three people happened? to murder somebody. <laughs> we went with right. the fourth one. Okay. Her first three attempts were unsuccessful. So if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. The aspiring model did not let her failures deter her, and she thought she found an accomplice in an old friend. Oh gosh, you guys, this never works. This never works. Keep your friends out of it. Keep your friends out of it. She was shopping for a BMW in Rockford County when she struck up a conversation with Marquenzie Lewisaint, a car salesman who had lent a sympathetic ear when Kelly was going through her difficult divorce. When Kelly had previously purchased a vehicle for Marquenzie, she had provided details about how rough her divorce was, and Marquenzie offered his help to her. He told her to let him know if she, quote, needed any help and that he knew, quote, a few people that could help her out. So (laughs) there's some kind of like innuendos going on here, some double entendres, I guess. So I think he later said it was like, I meant police interaction. (laughs) Right, right. So not I'm going uh to kill someone for you. And she took it. She's completely misconstrued his words and assumed that her car salesman was a hitman by night. I mean, really. So the two arranged meetings in a Walmart parking lot that was ironically across the street from a police station. So I so in a lot of these stories, I always talk about Walmart. Like, if you're going to commit a crime, stay away from Walmart. Walmart will catch you. 
It's a it lot of catch Walmart you. situations. <laughs> it always catch you using Walmart video. Like mm-hmm. you, people go to Walmart and buy things to commit the crime. Mm-hmm. It's either Walmart or Home Depot every single time. This is like a double whammy because the Walmart is literally across the street from a police station. Wouldn't it be great if a Home Depot was next door? <laughs> oh my, it probably was. It probably was. So the pair discussed a plan to eliminate Susan from the picture, but Kelly was unaware that her conversations would be documented by a series of cameras in Mackenzie's car. So once he figured out that she actually thought he was a hitman, he's in in his mind thinking, oh, she's, wait, oh, she's asking me to, okay, I probably should record these conversations because I'm sure in his mind, he's thinking if I don't do something to have some proof that this is going to happen, she's probably going to end up killing this woman. Yeah, he like went apparently went to the police like right away. Mm -hmm. And they like, were like, okay, let's set up a sting operation and like recorded audio. And there they do talk about the story on Chris Hansen with Dateline. And he I watched a video of it. And it was I got you could they show like the car video and everything. It's like, yeah, Oh There's gosh. so many of those this out there. Just a fake story. This is like for real. And people think they get in a car and there's not going to be any hidden cameras. No, there's always a hidden camera. Just and I tell I tell ner- ner- like nursing students and new grads whenever I'm precepting someone at the hospital, I'm like, assume you are being recorded mm-hmm. at all times oh, in a patient's room. Hosp- yes. Yeah, just assume there. Assume that they or their family member has put a, a a camera in there. And if you treat your job that way and you act that way. With that sort of integrity, I'm with the with okay. I oh, I just dropped this pill on the floor. Darn it! Oh, you know, and you're so busy. You've got so many things to do, and you just can't. It's so tempting to be like, oh, I can just pick it up and just keep going and keep doing my job. No, is that the right thing to do? It's not. Pretend like you're being on. If you're on a camera, there's no way you're going to do that. So assume you're always being recorded, because so many times in these stories that I do, people are literally just having conversations, just blathering on about mm-hmm. all the bad things they're planning to do. Well, and it's interesting. Like when you walk on your hospital campus, you sh- like there's cameras in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. There's probably cameras in your elevator. There's cameras in hallways. There's definitely cameras in your med room. You know, like, and in today's world with everyone has a smartphone, like, I would also be assuming that any family member is, you know, doing that too. Yeah, so I think that that's a good rule of thumb. And also in your email correspondence, because while it's your work email, you do not own that email address. Your your hospital does. So if you say things <laughs> on your email, like, you know, that they can see literally all of that. It's not private by any means. No. So yeah, you really want to be like above reproach essentially in what you do and like cutting corners and things like that. Like, yeah, I think that's a good way to cover yourself essentially. Yeah. And you know, so many times, you know, when I, when I'm talking about these stories on this podcast and I, I joke around about how, you know, I, that I'm giving advice to people who would commit crimes, but really in reality, Obviously, we want to be good people. I want you to be good, pe- a good person and have integrity and do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But sometimes we have to do the right thing because we just we're we're afraid for our own, you know, license. We're afraid for our own safety, afraid, afraid for our own future. Sometimes you just got to that's what punishment uh, deterring, you know, is all about. That's why, you know, we round people up and put them in jail. Part of the reason is to deter the rest of society from doing something they otherwise would have done. So if for some reason you don't have that moral code in you, for whatever reason, at least, at least, you know, value your own license, value your, your own freedom, your own future to make the right decision. But obviously, you know, if, if you live your life wanting to do the right thing all the time, wanting to be a good person and and striving, obviously, we're not nobody's perfect. But if you strive to be that person, you're going to be a lot happier, you're going to be your life's going to be filled with more joy. There's no doubt about that. I believe it 100%. And so, you know, when I joke around about, you know, like, (laughs) Sometimes I just joke around on this podcast since I think people are like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. I can you get around. I'm like, I joke about things. That doesn't mean I, you know, like really mean that or I would do that or whatever. But anyway, 
So Kelly initially suggested that they eliminate Susan with a staged hit and run car accident. After nearly a dozen meetings, Markenzie and Kelly agree on a price for the murder. A dozen? It took 12? Mm-hmm. 12 meetings? I mean... They, I couldn't believe that either. That they sat in that car, they met at least 12 times to talk and let, about this. Like, she's out loose. What if she had some other person on the line that she's working with? What if she had some other plot that she was, you know, working on to kill him? She's literally homicidal. So, you know, what's interesting I think about when you, when it's like, she says, I want to do a hit and run. It's like, oh, like, so you're like, you, you hit someone else with a vehicle who died. Is this why? (gasps) Oh, oh my gosh. The irony here. It's so not she's lost, thinking, probably. oh, I hit someone and got away with it. So this would this is the way you want to do this. Or, ooh, even more sinister mm-hmm. was that. So she, she said, mm. this was a plan. She said to the guy, let's do a hit and run. But what we got to do is the driver has to stay there and be like, say how it was an accident. He didn't mean to hit her. And, you know, because then it makes it look like it was it definitely was an accident. And there'll be no investigation. And it's like, oh, like... Is that what happened with your situation whenever this happened before? Like, is this your reference point? I just, I thought this is just, this is just too um, mm-hmm. similar, right? Like, I'm just wondering if maybe some d- d- investigators should not be going back and l- looking into that other case. I, I don't know. know. I know. So, <laughs> yeah, a dozen meetings. Markenzie and Kelly agree on a prize for the murder. $100,000. It was a steep price that a single mother like Kelly could not have afforded on her own, but money was no object when she had a wealthy doctor willing to <clears throat> foot the bill. Ugh, that was bad. But, um, it <laughs> <laughs> was really bad. Before Ira and Kelly were willing to fork over the money, they had to ensure that Markenzie was the real deal. This <laughs> is a little too little too late at this point. You already missed that mark way your way off. They tasked him with roughing up a couple of insurance adjusters who were investigating Ira's practice for suspected fraud. So they're like, let's let's have like a dry run on mm-hmm. this insurance person that I don't like. And mm-hmm. then if, if you can pull this off, then we'll give you this other job. Yeah. And I guess those guys were lit. They weren't just random insurance. And sp- they were they were getting ready to bring charges to the district attorney for his medical practice, like insurance fraud things. Like, so they already knew who those guys were. So it's just kind of, uh, oh, my gosh. Anyways, well, continue. Markenzie delivered photographic, quote, proof that he had taken care of the adjusters and a date was set for the hit. But a few days later, Ira approached Markenzie with suspicion and told him that there were a few red flags that he had noticed. Neither one of the adjusters was admitted to the hospital, despite their photographed injuries denoting necessary medical attention would be needed. Now back up. Mm-hmm. How does he know that? Mm. Is he looking at hospital oh. census stuff 100%. because he's a physician, and it, which is illegal, <laughs> yep. right? Like, Absolutely. You can't go, how do you know who's been admitted to a hospital? You can't just get that information. Like, you have to look that up or you have to ask someone who works at the local hospitals to check and see if these certain people were admitted. So that's not okay. Nope, it's not. Just one more thing to pile on (laughs) to this big pile of criminal activity. Police had enough evidence to arrest both Ira and Kelly with the help of Markenzie and, and of course, as the undercover police informant. Ira and Kelly soon changed their story and proclaimed that while they entertained the idea of a hit, they had changed their mind in the end. The podiatrist, however, did admit to stealing from an insurance company and overbilling for medical expenses. He claimed that Susan knew about his fraud, the fraud scheme for money and was trying to blackmail him. As you alluded to earlier, he's basically trying to like, so he let this go on for all these years. She's saying, Oh, I'm going to go, I'll I'll tell on you. And now he wants to say, well, she was going to tell on me. And I feel like that's not going to do you any good. 
at this point. Now, if yeah. she was blackmailing him and he had proof at the time it was going on, like, he's like, you know what? It's not worth this. I'm going forward and records her literally blackmailing him. Absolutely. But at this point, I don't know how you go back and say, oh, well, she was blackmailing me. I don't get it. No, I don't think so. So in the end, Ira pleaded guilty to second degree conspiracy to commit murder and two misdemeanor counts of fifth degree conspiracy and was sentenced to five to 15 years in prison. Kelly received a four to 12 year sentence for conspiracy. Ira was released from incarceration in 2021 after having served just four years in prison. I wonder if he got out because of COVID. I wondered that too. I know because of the overcrowding and mm-hmm. it, yeah, it just became, right. became it, too much. Like, it, yeah. it, it's not like he, you know, they, the people that they were like letting out early, you know, people who didn't commit an actual, like he didn't actually commit a violent crime technically. I know, like, but he, what I don't understand you know. about these situations, Katie, is like, I, I've, cause I've done, <laughs> I, I was talking to Katie before the, the podcast and I'm like, yep, yeah, I've got a whole stockpile of all these stories of medical people doing crazy things. And I've started categorizing them. There are so many people who plan to do bad things. They don't actually do it, but they were planning, they were literally going to do it. They had Tiger King. He did yeah, it. Exactly. He <laughs> you have all this stuff planned out. You clearly were going to do it. You clearly had the capacity to do it. So you're going to just let this person run around free? I don't know. I don't know that I agree with that. And top it all off, because this is not the end of this story. One year after his release from prison, Ira allegedly recruited his sister, Jacqueline Goldberg, an employment attorney, and tried to launch a second murder plot. Now, this is alleged. He's not admitted to this. She was accused of helping to cover up the conspiracy. She was charged with one count of tampering with physical evidence and one count of third degree hindering the prosecution and one count of fifth degree conspiracy. This is a new indictment. It's not at all connected to the previous case, according to the police statement. The Ramapo Police Department did not release any further details details surrounding the case, but both Ira and his sister Jacqueline have pleaded not guilty. So they have pleaded not guilty to this, but Oh, my goodness, to a year later be accused of of this. Wow. I know. I really... So the indictment is sealed, and I really want to read it because it gives... Like, all it says is what the charges are and who's involved. It does not say any details about why. And this is from June of 2023, like June 5th. And supposedly, this plot for him, like, occurred in, like, from July to September of 2022. And then they took the the rest of the time to get out all the evidence. And then they finally brought the charges in June of this year. So there hasn't been an update since. And I'm very curious to see what happens. And there, another interesting thing when you think about, because I was looking at this story, big picture, because like you said, he pled, both him and Kelly pled guilty. So there was no trial. So when they originally got arrested, he was able to bail himself out, but he did not bail her out. And she was in jail for like four or five months. And she was going to turn state's witness and testify against him to get a lesser sentence, right? Which is, that happens a lot, right? In these kinds of things. But she eventually gets out of jail and goes to live with him while she's working with the state. And the state ended up deciding not to use her because she was too much of a wild card. Oh, wow. How, like, you never have your witness literally living with the other, like, the person they're supposed to testify against, like, and he also said in, I can't remember when, but, because I, because I was like, okay, was this guy, like, super manipulated by this Kelly chick, and, you know, was she kind of run, like, driving it, and he also said he was coerced by Kelly into following through with this. And that was dismissed. And then Kelly said that the, what was that guy's name? The informant? Oh, Markenzie. Markenzie. That he threatened her and said that he would kill her and feed her body to the alligators if she went back on it or something. I don't know. And then the Which prosecution. Obviously, we like, know it's not true because he's right. not even a real. Oh, boy. And all of this stuff's recorded, right? Like, so I just, but then, so I was like, I, I a little bit bought that he was being manipulated. But then to see that he gets indicted again for the same thing, 
So I'm like, I gotta, I gotta find out what happens here. Like, I know. This has to be one that we kind of come back and revisit. Like I'll I'll have cases sometimes that I'm like, well, we're sort of a little bit of a cliffhanger here. We'll have to pick this back up, you know, in a year or so whenever some resolution happens. So yeah, it'll be interesting if it's like, if it gets unsealed and everything, but then if he ends up like pleading guilty or something, I guess, and he only faces like three and a half more years because of what, whatever happened. I'm not, you know, we don't know what happened, but. Apparently, with the specific charges that were filed that I can't remember, it's only three and a half years if you were to get convicted. So, it's all really interesting. It's surprising. That's, that's shocking to me, you yeah. know, that, yeah, that you could go Repeat through offender. these steps. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and, and, and it is alleged, you know, so, of course. That's you know, true. But it is alleged. Wow. I don't know what he did, but this is very <laughs> interesting. And, well, and thankfully, though, he has lost his medical license, so... I wonder I wonder if there's any other charges or things about like fraud too. Cuz clearly if he's doing this other stuff, that judgment is not where it needs to be. Oh boy. And you wonder if there's like completely separate cases that are like from his practice like and if it's his a sad wife situation that was happening like yeah. could she be implicated? I don't know. It's dicey. It is. It's very dicey. It's very sad that someone could, you know, work as hard as he obviously had to to get through medical school and accomplish all that he accomplished. And then it all just kind of go awry and everything just fell apart and kind of went off the deep end. With all that work and time and money and, and to have it unfold like that, like, is pretty... I mean, like nursing school is not nearly as long. And it's like, if I were like to lose that from like some, like do something like this, like, I mean, that would be just it's, it's such a waste, to be honest. Like you would, I don't know. It just makes yeah. you so sad to like. Yep. Think it about is, that. I definitely, definitely a cautionary tale for people listening to this. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So you know I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it and she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing Uh, You can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get started with our good nurse segment. So glad to get to talk to you about what, tell everyone about your, your blog. How did you get started with that? Tell us about the blog and what it's all about and how that morphed into a podcast and just tell us all about you too, as a nurse and how you, you know, became a nurse. Yeah. So I graduated um, back in 2010 and, you know, I was one of those bright eyed students who just wanted to do really well. And I graduated and thought that I already passed the NCLEX. I know what I'm doing. Oh, how wrong I was. I, you know, I started at a great hospital that had a great residency program. And that was back when residency programs were like really just getting started. And so to be at a hospital with one was pretty cool. 
And I was still very unprepared. And while I had that support, I still was learning things on the fly that I didn't feel like I should have had to learn on the fly, especially after paying all that money for nursing school and all that time and everything. Like, why has no one told me how to call a surgeon in the middle of the night? I know there's S-bar. I know what the textbook says. You aren't doing that at three in the morning with a surgeon who's falling asleep on you when you're talking. Like, you know what I mean? Or how to, how to, how to actually deal with someone who's yelling at you. Like, the textbook is so different from reality. So I was working in a cardiac step-down med surge, like cardiac surgery, cardiothoracic and vascular stuff. Then after I kind of got my feet under me there, my husband and I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I started working in a neuro ICU. And I went through that learning curve all over again, going from like kind of mainly floor patients to true ICU patients. So I had a whole new learning curve. And when I kind of got my feet under me with that, I discovered Tumblr. It's kind of like having your own blog without having to like host and, you know, like long form, you can type really long things on there and pictures and stuff and have blog posts essentially, but it's hosted by Tumblr. So I found that I saw one or two nurse ones that were um, funny. And I thought to myself, I can do this. So I made funny ones. And then I made ones that were practical, like how to actually start off your shift, how to manage your time, how to call that surgeon those kind of things. And those got shared a lot. And I was really surprised at, because there were a lot of other people who were experiencing that too. I thought I was this unique person who could not figure figure things out. Apparently a lot of people are like that. So it got popular. I had some good friends who were very smart in websites and things at great times and gave me great advice. And, hey, why don't you start an actual website yourself? That's not Tumblr, you know. So I did that. And that was like 2013 is when that happened. Um, and that there were really only a few nurse blogs at that time. You know, a lot of people were nervous about social media being a nurse. They were nervous about um, getting fired and all that kind of stuff. And I was actually anonymous too. So I was anonymous for two or three years or something. I can't remember exactly how long. And then my blog got popular. My social media has got more popular. And I decided I wanted to self-publish a book because I had certain content that was resonating a lot. And I was like, let me just put this in like a PDF. And I was hoping just to make my money back on it. You know, I think I only spent like five, $600 between all the editing and design and all that kind of stuff. And it sold like thousands and thousands of copies and has been in nurse residency programs and nursing schools and that kind of stuff since. Because of that, I landed a book deal with the American Nurse Association and started doing speaking events in 2017, figured out how to do a podcast. And it's all been geared towards new nurses to help that beginner go from nursing school, or if you graduated and you've been away from practice for a while, getting back into that to help acclimate people and bridge that gap between like textbook and reality, because it is pretty different what the textbook says to do versus what it's like having a living, breathing human in front of you who needs you um, or who's yelling at you, you know, all those and everything in between. <laughs> so um, now, um, so like, like I mentioned, been doing it for a while and I've kind of settled into, I've created some on-demand online courses to just help people instead of, you know, here's some podcast episodes or some YouTube videos. It's more of like a step-by-step for people new to neuro, cardiac, just general ICU, med surge, ortho. And I have like a general residency program too, for people who don't have a residency program. Those are very expensive for hospitals to create. And I've noticed that even though hospitals spend a lot of money to create them, they're all not created equal and they can just become something else you have to do. Something they say they offer, but it doesn't necessarily move the needle. So that's where I've kind of been putting all of my nurse educator brains into are these courses and my email list and, you know, supporting people like, like that. Well, that's, that's, that's awesome. I think what you've done there is just kind of recognize your own struggles and then reach out to try to help other people, which I think is amazing. It makes a wonderful nurse. It's the kind of people you want to work alongside at a hospital, you know, because even at the best of hospitals where they are really try to keep the ratios where they need to be. And, you know, you, have the resources for the most part that you need. I've worked at hospitals like that. And even then, it is a hard job. You don't want really to feel like you're being judged for every mistake you make, for every question that you need to ask. So the way that you feel what you described as a new nurse, that's I remember feeling exactly like that. I graduated in 2015. 
And I remember being scared, just really horrified at taking care of a real breathing person who's extremely sick and just not knowing. I had so much I didn't know. And it's just kind of thrown, you feel like you're kind of thrown to the wolves. So I really appreciate that. I wish I had known back then. I did not know back then in 2015 about all the stuff that was out there. It was not as prominent as it is now. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, that was before Instagram existed, like, you know, like, and certainly before TikTok existed, but I'm learning, you know, nursing is such a social, um, job where you're caring for other people. So you have to really know how to like have these like emotional intelligence and, and highly tuned like social skills and not just with your patient, but also with your teammates because you, it's not just you and your own patients. You're, you're not in a silo. Like it's your whole unit and you help each other out. And how do you fit into a team? And that's all the like unspoken rules, you know, like, and there's a lot of people out there who just really want to know what they are so they can help and not become, be a burden and somehow be in the way when they're here and they're just, they just want to help. So I think it's, brings me a lot of joy to support people going through that because there's there's so many so many have such a great heart to help people they just don't know how and they also want to do it in a way where they they uh can acclimate without looking like a sticking out like a sore thumb you know and and I think it's getting harder and harder to do that you know the the more te- well technology is wonderful I think that it hinders some social emotional intelligence development too so it can be harder to pick up the phone and talk on it and <laughs> call a physician or and have a tough conversation. That was another thing I wasn't prepared for. Like, you know, the physician drops an emotional bomb like, hey, this isn't going to get better. You're, they're going to pass away in the next 48 hours. They leave the room and you're there. What do you say? How do you even like, I remember feeling like, I don't even know how to be in this moment. I don't know. Like, what to say. And I also mostly really wanted to know what not to say because those things are subtle. And then you can say something with all all the best intentions and really piss somebody off. So I just want to help people not have as many foot in mouth experiences as I had where I said the wrong thing to the grieving family member or the fresh post-op who just had their you know, foot cut off for um, diabetes or whatever. And yeah, I've made a lot of dumb mistakes and I want to make sure other people don't. <laughs> yeah, which is great. Well, it's, where can people find the book that you're talking about? Yeah, so it's so the first edition is called Becoming Nursey from Code Blues to Code Browns, How to Care for Patients and Yourself. So I wrote that in 2013. Um, you can find that on Amazon. But I also did a second edition through the American Nurses Association, and it's called um, Anatomy of a Super Nurse, The Ultimate Guide to Becoming Nursey. That's also available on Amazon. It is more expensive. I think Becoming Nursey, the original one, I think is like 11, 12 bucks. And then the other one, I think it's like closer to 20. They set the price, so I have no control over that. But it is twice as long. And, you know, I had a, like, it was beautifully professional. It's a beautiful, professional little piece of work. And I'm really happy with that one. So um, the second edition is great. I have a few more books. You know, if you just search Katie Cleaver on Amazon, I think five or six titles come up. And then if you wanted to check out courses, I have multiple free ones where, you know, I see you drips for beginners where I, like, well, this is one of my favorite ones where I walk through what ICU drips are, like pretending like you've never heard what I define the word drip. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> what titration means. And, break it all down. Yeah. Primary and secondary tubing, those things that- I you know, love that though, Katie, because I, I would tell people, you know, sometimes if, if I was being precepted and they would be like, look, sorry, if I tell you something you already know, I'm like, tell me everything. I don't care. Act like I'm the, the biggest idiot. I will, if I already know it, that just confirms it in my mind that I was right. right. Just tell me everything. I want to know everything. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know what I noticed? Because there is so there is such a large amount of information that you have to learn just to be functional on any nursing unit. But there would be so many things that we would just as preceptors or as n- clinical instructors or the primary nurse who has clinical students, just assume someone else told you. And like, like telemetry, like, you know, 
how actually does all that work? You know, like, how does this talk to this? And, you know, you kind of learn it on the fly as you mess it up. But does anyone really sit down and walk with you through what's a five lead versus a 12 lead versus a three lead versus... And what colors go where? <laughs> yes. And and what, yeah. And how how does this actually work? And what's the difference between cardiac monitoring in the ICU versus on the floor versus in the emergency department. There are differences there, you know? And so we kind of just assume that somebody else at some point, you had to have told, you know, somebody told you what primary and secondary tubing is, right? Or whatever. And you may have heard it quickly, but you needed to hear it six times before it really solidified in your brain. So I took all those things that I needed 20 explanations for. And I put them in there so that people at home can look at that as many times as they need to. And don't nobody need to know that they had to watch the arterial line video 15 times before they're like, oh, I think okay. I get it now. <laughs> so that when you show up at the bedside, you have a degree of familiarity. And when you have that and you're not coming in completely blind, you can engage in that authentic learning a little bit better because you're not as revved up, fight or flight, nervous, you're like, okay, I've seen this before. I've heard about this before. Oh, this makes sense because I've read this or whatever it is. So the more I can help people familiarize themselves at home so they can engage more and be less stressed at the bedside is a win for me and kind of what I'm like going for. So the, you know, I have my various books. Those are more big picture they're not as nitty-gritty clinical as like the courses are and obviously I've got like videos in there you know that aren't in the books but you know those are different options and then I do have my podcast where they're all evergreen except for a few things like I you know have I did a deep dive on like the Redondavant case and that kind of stuff and various like more times like TikTok nurses getting fired that kind of thing but if you start at episode one I walk through like you know, evergreen content of how to acclimate. Like I start with what to expect from your nursing orientation because I didn't know what to expect when I started. Everyone like acted like we knew what was going to happen, but I didn't understand. How quick am I going to take one patient, two patients? When do I progress to four patients? I don't know. Uh, what's realistic? Should I be taking five patients in two weeks? I have no idea, you know? So we have no reference point. And I never got that information in nursing school, which drove me nuts. Like, and in nursing school, and I and I did not go to nursing school during COVID. That changed a lot of things for people. They had a lot fewer experiences, which really has changed the game and has been very challenging because it was hard enough already. And I felt like we didn't have enough clinical time already. And when I was in school, I had I, I never got to a point where I was on some med surge unit independently taking care of five patients. I mean, not, not completely independently, like even with another nurse there. It wasn't like I was running the show for four or five patients and like doing really well, it was like, okay, give the student two patients, you know? And I never got to the point to progress up to the point where I felt like I could start on a nursing unit and kind of know what I was doing. So those that's like the tough learning curve that I think that we're thrown into that I want to ease for people. So I have that ICU drips for beginner, which is free. I also have one nursing report, kind of more geared towards med surge, but that's a big stress point. Like, I have this experienced nurse that I'm talking to that I want to sound like I know what I'm saying. And then when I'm getting report, they're talking so fast, I don't even know what to focus on. Like, how do, what's going on here? <laughs> this is so fast. I don't know what happened. It just, I, I didn't even know the questions to ask. I didn't want to look stupid. So I have it, and this is a free resource too. And it just walks through the things that are normal expectations and reasonable. That was another question. What is reasonable to ask somebody and what's not reasonable? What's going to give somebody make make them look at me with a side eye like you're ridiculous for asking that because as a newbie you don't know and you want to have some knowledge about those things so you don't make that tough impression at the beginning because those can be hard to undo um, so hopefully helping set people up for success in that hospital environment I love it I love all of that I know so many people that listen to this podcast that send me messages send me emails are always talking about how that kind of information is just invaluable to them because how discouraging it can be sometimes as a new, as a nursing student and as a new grad, how scary it is, how easily burnt out you can, you can get. Sometimes it's horrible, but you know, that, that lateral bullying, you know, that can go on. And so 
to have that resource, I think is just just amazing. What where can they find your courses? Yeah, if you just go to freshrn.com, you can see everything like you can click on books, courses, podcast, blog, I have hundreds of blog posts too, um, specific to cardiac, neuro, med surge, those specialties. Now, I am not a pediatrics nurse. I am not a NICU nurse. I'm not an emergency department nurse. I don't have any of that stuff. I have a I have, I did have a guest author do it, a really good emergency department post, but I don't have like a course for ER. But if you go to freshrn.com, you can click there and you can find all of my resources and the podcast and blog and my email list where I send, if you sign up for my email list, I send you a new, an email every week about, you know, encouraging things and stories from the bedside and that kind of stuff. So, you know, just go to freshrn.com and all the resources are there, multiple free things, paid things for whatever your um, needs are. So that's where you can find me. I love it. And of course, you guys know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and you can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com on social media at goodnursebadnurse. Super easy to remember. So thank you again, Katie, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And before we go, I have to remind you, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.